We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today I have Lisa Taylor Swanson. Actually, I should say Dr. Lisa Taylor Swanson. Lisa got her master's degree at the same school I did, Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine. And before that, she did a BA in um, developmental psychology. And recently, she has finished a PhD in research at the University of Washington's School of Nursing. Her dissertation is on menopausal transition. Lisa has this love of research that seems to have run all through her life since she was uh, originally in college, and a deep love for Chinese medicine and the, and the goodness that it brings to people. It's unusual in our field of Chinese medicine to have someone like Lisa that both is a skilled and an experienced practitioner and at the same time has an eye toward research. So that's what we're going to get into today. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk shop. It's always fun. Yeah, so we're talking shop with a bunch of people <laughs> listening into us. True. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> so I know you've been interested in research for a long time, and I don't really have a research bin myself. I mean, I look at it a little bit because everybody looks at it. Um, I tend to look more at clinical studies and case studies and, you know, old books and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm curious to hear about how research informs the work that you do. And I want to get into a number of things about, you know, like double-blind studies and, you know, how to, how to think about research, how to know what research is good, what research is bogus and... Um, I mean, we're just going to dig into all of it here. I, what I, the question I'd like to start with is when many of us think about research, we think of double-blind studies like they would do for pharmaceutical drugs. And that kind of thing seems like it's pretty much impossible to do with acupuncture because someone's going to know if something's happening or not if they're getting acupuncture. And if someone's doing the acupuncture, 
they're going to know if they're actually doing acupuncture or just uh, hitting some points that actually aren't acupuncture points at all. How do you do research on acupuncture? That's a great question. And there's a bunch of different answers because you're absolutely right that double-blind studies don't work for myriad reasons. One being absolutely, as you noted, clinicians rendering acupuncture, they're going to know if they're using, for example, a Streitberger needle, which is a little device basically placed on the body that uh, you put the Streitberger needle in there, you tap on it, it touches the patient and then immediately retracts. And it's a sensation that the patient actually cannot distinguish whether it was an insertion needle or a non-insertion experience. So they can be blinded, so to speak, or masked. But mm. but absolutely, clinicians, they're knowing, they will know whether they've used that or a standard needle, what have you. I think the problem with these designs really are beyond, the, it's a deeper problem than simply a, a mechanical one. It's actually a philosophical a problem which renders methods and methodology that are that have been used for decades in acupuncture research, but frankly are are fruitless. So, for example, with and I'm kind of going on beyond the topic only of blinding and masking, but kind of research design in general. And Great. just stop me at any point. But no, this is this is the kind of thing I want to get into because I haven't studied research that much in depth in the in the models that I have in my mind you know, are, are the basic ones that I think most people think of when they think of research. So if you've got some other models in mind or there's something out, you know, some other ways out there that researchers are looking at this, this is totally germane to the subject. Absolutely. So maybe some, um, some information would be useful. In terms of methodologies, all of biomedical research is, is rooted in contemporary empiricism. So the goal is hypothesis testing. We want to figure out causality and prediction. So that's really the the philosophical foundation from which the RCTs, the randomized control trials, uh, stem. There's another worldview that's interpretive, and that's uh, more using qualitative methods. The goal isn't generalizability, but rather to really gain a deeper understanding of, of any phenomenon. And that has been used definitely with East Asian medicine research, but not a lot. Lastly, there's another uh, worldview that's more of a critical or emancipatory worldview where the goal is to change society, change power imbalances. So participants are included in the research design. It might be more of a qualitative, but it could be a quantitative method as well. But I think none of those really... Um, fit the bill terribly well. What I'm personally more interested in is more of a complex adaptive systems theoretical framework, which definitely is used in other uh, sciences. It uh, stems from math and physics and basically is a whole person view of any uh, medical phenomena. It could be whole environmental view in the case of ecology. And with a whole person or complex adaptive systems view, we would be looking at First of all, the whole intervention, which some people really do only provide acupuncture, but most clinicians that I know, definitely how I practice, I use cupping, I use gua sha, I use Chinese herbal medicine, some people use compo, and it's um, an emergent treatment that changes over time depending upon how the patient presents each day, even though it's the same person 
the way I see people and most clinicians that I know see each person that day for who they are. And they may be very different than even the week prior. It's so true. We just don't have protocols because everyone's different. It does emerge. Mm -hmm. The protocols are required by those randomized uh, control trials. So, for example, you know, all the studies on low back pain, most of them use all right, we're going to use UB60, kidney 3, UB23, 52, UB10, see how they do. Well, that's fine. You know, we probably use those points on a lot of patients. But what about if a patient either is in so much pain they can't lay on their abdomen? We need to use, you know, Yao Tong Shui on the hands or whatever would be indicated by their constitution. You might throw in some Monica ion pumping cords or what have you. It's, mm-hmm. We never practice protocols in clinic. Actually, not never. Rarely. We rarely practice with pro- protocols in clinic. Right. So this, this way that you're talking about of using the complex adaptive systems, it sounds like they really fit with this emergent way that most Chinese medicine practitioners practice in their clinic. Exactly. And a part of, I think, how this worldview fits is that there's a way of looking at very complex patterns of change over time. And that's what we as clinicians are trained to see, how we diagnose our provider differential diagnosis for our patients by looking at this complex pattern of symptoms and signs and assessing what the diagnosis is or what the diagnoses are. Most people have several at any given point in time. And again, how that's changing over time. I think one key discussion that's slowly happening in the literature regarding complex adaptive systems theory in East Asian medicine and, and CAM as a whole is that there are um, non-specific, non-specific effects. So specific effects are, for example, the, the plethora of very well-conducted basic research on, say, for example, acupuncture mechanisms. So we know, for example, that serotonin is increased when acupuncture is provided. We know all kinds of other central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, CT change, um, changes in the connective tissue. There are all these different levels where we can say, aha, this is what's happening when you provide acupuncture. But there's also nonspecific effects. For example, and also that's only looking at the biological level. There's uh, personality, emotional changes, spiritual changes ways of looking at the person that's biopsychosocial, so looking at the biology, their context in social life, and their psychological changes, I think are really key. So for example, when I have a patient who comes in for, again, say the treatment of low back pain, and they come back and say, yeah, actually my back feels a little better, and you know, I slept better because of course I was in less pain, and because I slept better, my mood was better, and because I felt better over the whole, I yelled at my kids less, there's no way we can measure those nonspecific effects of yelling at their kids less unless we ask those questions. So I think that's a key uh, paradigm shift that needs to happen. Yeah. So one of the things I find about the questioning that happens in an acupuncture treatment is we rarely just ask the patient about the, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, problem they came in with. Of course, we want to know about that. But we also look at their sleep, the state of their digestion, what's happening in their emotional life. I mean, we ask these questions in the first place, generally speaking, uh, to get an overall view of what's going on with somebody. I've found in my practice that people frequently will not notice 
that they've had these, I'm going to just call them downstream changes. Um, what did you, I think you called them emergent mm-hmm. effects or emergent changes. Often I've found people don't notice those until we actually ask. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And it's, I think also another key aspect of clinical, uh, the clinical experience that also needs to be addressed in research and sometimes is, is that of the, the patient-practitioner relationship. It's as you get to know that patient, you might know to ask, oh, and you know, how are things at work? Because you know them well enough to know they're working or something, or how are things at home? Or um, those non-specific effects or those emergent changes that happen over time that you as a clinician know about because you know your patient. And I think that's another key component of what works, so to speak, in East Asian medicine, because we usually take time, which most docs and nurse practitioners, they have six minutes. They don't know anything, much of anything about their patient beyond what's in the chart. Right. Well, and this, this brings, brings me back to thinking about double-blind studies. These things wouldn't even be included. So you're talking about these complex adaptive systems, this, this whole other point of view. I, it's really got my attention. This is the first time I've heard of these. So tell us a bit more about how these models for research can grasp, include, and make sense of these emergent changes and patient-practitioner relationship and, and all this kind of stuff. So two things come to mind, and one is the concept of resilience. It's been written about by a, a friend and mentor of mine, Dave Pincus. He's an uh, excuse me. He's a psychologist in uh, California, and resilience is basically, if you think of a hammock and think of your patient's biopsychosocial, you know, sphere. You could think of their acupuncture meridians. You could think of their whole person. There's lots of ways to visualize it. But imagine the patient's a hammock, and as they have stressors, as they have, you know, they say they throw their back out or have a motor vehicle accident. Whatever happens in life. If they're basically meta-resilient, they're pretty healthy, they're going to bounce back fairly quickly from whatever has happened. But if there's, say, again, to use the the hammock metaphor, uh, part of it's been damaged, say, by dampness, so part of the hammock is soggy, you could say, Mm -hmm. then whatever is happening that's emergent, they're going to have uh, a hole, a tear, a rip in that hammock of resilience, so it's going to take longer to repair He's got some beautiful work looking at uh, marriage dynamics and psychological concepts with this idea of resilience. I think it maps really well onto traditionally Asian medicine because, again, we're looking at the whole person in the context of their lives and, and how they do or don't bounce back, so to speak, how they heal over time or, or don't. Um, there are specific, really complex, nonlinear statistical analyses to look at and identify, uh, say, if a person's in an attractor state, if they're stuck in one way of being and they can't, say, have a phase shift and bounce out of that. So there's, again, complex ways we can analyze that and say, oh, yeah, over the whole, say, this group of people we studied receiving whole East Asian medicine care, not only acupuncture protocol, because that wouldn't make any sense, um, looking at this whole sample, yes, those, as a whole, they gained in resiliency over time. There's a way to statistically identify that. So that's one thought. Um, and happily, there's some work being done by 
Mary Coithen, who's a nurse practitioner, by Iris Bell, who's a psychiatrist. They're down at Arizona and uh, at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Lisa Convoy, who's an acupuncture and East Asian medicine researcher strictly at NISA, the New England School of Acupuncture. Um, also, Scott Mist, who's an acupuncturist and researcher down at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. These are all groups of people who are really thinking about whole systems of care, complex adaptive systems, and thinking of traditionalization medicine as a whole, not strictly as acupuncture as a, as a protocol. This is, to me, fascinating stuff. Now, is this, I suspect this is not the kind of research that you're going to see on Huffington Post or on MSN News or, you know, Fox News or whatever. This is probably not the stuff that's going to show up on the Internet, right? Usually the stuff on the Internet says, oh, this equals that. Mm-hmm. Because we're, as a whole society, really rooted in that positivistic view, Cartesian way of, of analyzing and describing and studying, where we, we have a hypothesis, we prove it or we disprove it. That's it, end of story. And, and you're absolutely right, Michael. But I think as we see, even in political uprisings, even as we're seeing cultural changes in our country slowly around uh, marriage for everyone, around Black Lives Matter, we're not... I think as a, as a people really content with on or off, this works or it doesn't, I, I think slowly we're becoming more nuanced in our conversations about things. I hope so anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to translate to research. These studies are being conducted and they are accessible. You can go onto PubMed and do a search. Um, at some point I'll have more links on my own website to these you know studies that I love reading because I think we need to have um, more visibility for them. But you're right. At the time, what tends to make the Huffington's Post or what's in JAMA will be the RCTs. And most of that, dearly, I mean respectfully, it's, it's not garbage, but it's close to it. It renders our medicine weak because, for example, with the protocol, it's, it's like if you were to conduct an RCT on Zoloft and, and test it with a half dose. Of course, this, the effects are not going to be very strong, and that's what we're testing with uh, protocol acupuncture. It's, it's a weakened intervention. I think that point is really critical when we think about sham acupuncture. It's not a sham. It's not inert. Study after study after study after study has shown that sham acupuncture, like I mentioned before, it could be the Streitberger needle that touches and then retracts. Those of us who may have received uh, training in Japanese acupuncture know that there's all kinds of contact needling used. Sure. It's acupuncture, even if it's contact. Yeah. And there's sham acupuncture. Well, they use off-channel points. Well, again, clinicians, we all know there's osher points that can be active anywhere, basically, nearly anywhere. Um, then there's using sham acupuncture that might be using points that wouldn't be thought to be useful for, say, low back pain. They might throw in spleen 10. Well, there's a reason that we could throw in spleen 10 if it were indicated for a patient by their differential diagnosis. So again, that type of sham is not inert. Finally, NIH's division that studies integrative health, um, NCCIH, has said, you know, actually sham is not a sham. It's not inert. And they're finally not encouraging. And they, and they really won't fund research with sham acupuncture. Because the other issue is when you can compare acupuncture, whether it's a protocol or sometimes we will use 
what's called manualized acupuncture. So it's by differential diagnosis, but only certain points can be used. When you compare that to sham acupuncture and research is trying to find between group effects, is this better than that? Well, sham acupuncture isn't a sham. It's not inert. It's another diluted intervention. And so those studies are really comparing two diluted types of acupuncture. And again, it's like we end up in this messy morass. It's a soup that can't really clearly tell us with effective evidence to take to policymakers, to tell other colleagues about, to tell our patients about. It doesn't increase our street cred because it's, it's messy. It's not well-conducted research. Yeah. Well, and it seems like the policymakers and, and the sort of common thinking of the time is you have something, it works or it doesn't. It's placebo mm-hmm. or it's not. It ha- there's got to be an absolute measurable one-to-one effect between some sort of cause and some sort of effect. Mm-hmm. And it's way more complex than that. Any practitioner will tell you that, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this raises another question for me. This is this, Lisa. This is a fascinating conversation. I had a whole list of questions that I sent you. Mm-hmm. None of them are relevant anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go where we're going because it's emergent. Yeah. It because it, it's emergent. So this brings up the question for me of placebo, right? So if we're dealing with emergent phenomena, it would seem to me that placebo is not even in the mix anymore. We simply have what is present and what downstream effects are. Am, am I correct right. in that? Am I reading this right? No, I think you are reading it right. It's an interesting connection that I hadn't made in my brain in this way until now. And I mean, on the one hand, say, for example, if you're looking at drug trials and they'll use a so-called placebo that's a sugar pill, you're absolutely right in this fact that each person's physiology is going to process that sugar pill differently depending upon if they have metabolic syndrome or they don't or they have a history in their family of drug addiction and alcohol addiction alcohol processes a sugar they might have sugar cravings they're going to have a different response to that sugar pill than someone who doesn't have that again biopsychosocial reality um, that could respond to that placebo differently in the case of acupuncture, I mean, the, the research on placebo and nocebo, trying to sort out, is acupuncture simply a placebo? I agree. It's, it's sort of a moot point. If you, it, it's like a, if you take a, your glasses off and put on a different pair of glasses and literally look through different lenses, it's a different conversation based on, on the worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm just thinking here, too. I have a number of patients, you know, I'm I'm in St. Louis, we have a big medical school here, and they do all kinds of studies. And I've had more than a few patients that that have been trying to get into some kind of study. And to a person, they're all very, very excited about getting into a study, which, as we're looking at emergent phenomena here in complex systems, what does it mean when you have a study full of people that are very excited about being in a study? (laughs) Great question. That's different than, than just your straight up common or randomized population. You've got a population of people that have some kind of thing invested in it. So your your question, Michael, I think is or your comment also is a great one in terms of people who are really excited about research. There's actually a, a term, there's a term for everything, it seems like. And the Hawthorne effect is when people 
are really uh, basically excited about being a study. They know they're being observed and they want to try and modify or change their behavior in response to their awareness of being observed. So, so there is a real phenomenon about that. Um, and that's something you can't really control for. Control is a, is a technical term where you're trying to, in that um, empiricist worldview, you're trying to, to get down to only the specific effects you're studying regarding your specific intervention. So again, if you're doing a drug trial, you're going to try to control for age and for gender and for socioeconomic status and all that other stuff. But Hawthorne effect might be another thing that you would want to control for. If you only have people who are really excited about your drug, then yes, they might be more likely to say, oh yes, I'm not depressed, I feel great. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. I'm really struck at how quickly this thing gets so complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, because, you know, that's, that's what we're studying. If, I guess if we were studying atoms or something that you can isolate in the test tube, you, there could be more of that scientific rigor that's typically expected in scientific research. And I think there's an absolute way to have rigor looking with a more complex worldview, so to speak, at phenomenon. We can still use standardized questionnaires that are validated, that are shown to be reliable. We can still use our either standard statistics or we can use nonlinear statistics if we're interested in nonlinear change, if we think it's a nonlinear phenomenon. There's a way to look at, um, oh, it's almost like instead of just looking at is the back pain better or worse, if you take a step back and look at changes of, again, these meta-flexibility, the whole person change, resilience, there's a way to do that with rigor, but again, it's not as if you've got a test tube and you're just checking to see if the chemical is absent or present. It's just never going to be that straightforward with, with healthcare research. Have you found in your clinical practice, and I know that you, you run a, an active clinical practice, especially dealing with um, fertility and, and women in uh, midlife, so uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Have you found that the way that you work in clinic with your patients as a clinician, the questions you ask, the things you do, has that been impacted and has that shifted based on some of this complex system analysis that you're doing, these, these ways that you have of looking at nonlinear change? Does it change how you are with your patients or has it changed how you are with your patients? Uh, I think I have three answers to that question. First off, I've always thought this way, and so that's why I studied East Asian medicine. I always, frankly, since high school, wanted to be a Western doc. And once I read the theory, it was all, honestly, Ted Kapchuk's book, The Web That Has No Weaver. Mm. I read classic, that. Classic book. Classic, yeah. yep. I read that chunky book and thought, aha, this is what I have to go study. I'm needlephobic. I never wanted to be an acupuncturist. <laughs> I never wanted that's to be That's hilarious. A I am too. 
Yeah. 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 Here we are. But it's the theory that made sense to me looking at, again, the whole person. Because the lab work I used to do in developmental psychology, that's where I learned about complex adaptive systems theory and system science. So for me, no, it's not changed how I practice because this is how I think and it's how I see the world and it's how I've always viewed the patients and all of that. Um, My second answer is that there's so little research being done using these methods, using these methodologies that I'm talking about for that reason as well, it's not really changed my practice because there's not a lot of it being done yet. My third answer is the standard kind of research that we've been talking about, the randomized control trials and all of that. A lot of clinicians ask me, you know, Lisa, why do you want to do research? The research is meaningless to us as clinicians. That kind of research, for the most part, absolutely, for clinical practice, is next to meaningless because it does not reflect uh, the worldview from which we sit, it, it's kind of like Looney Tunes, basically, mm-hmm. for most of us as clinicians. Yes. The one, it really is. The one exception I can really point to is all the very rigorously conducted RCTs on the POLIS protocol, looking at the specific POLIS acupuncture protocol that's provided pre-post IVF transfer. With that, we can say absolutely practice has been changed um, most fertility acupuncturists that I know do not only use the Paulus protocol, they use that pre-post IVF because that's what patients know about, that's what their reproductive endocrinology colleagues know about, it's, it's uh, standard protocol, literally. Mm-hmm. But most people also provide whole system East Asian medicine standard care that we are trained to provide during an IVF cycle. Or for patients that don't want to go through IVF, they'll, they'll use their standard practice um, in clinic with patients, and they won't use the POLIS protocol at all. But I can say that's one place where we have really a pretty cool uh, infinity loop between this continuum of how care is delivered, it's being changed by research, research is being changed by how care is delivered. Um, And that's, I think, where one aspect of East Asian medicine research where we've, I won't say gotten it right, but, but it's a real developing emergent literature. Um, Most recently, a dear friend of mine and and wonderful colleague, Lee Hollander-Rubin, has published a paper looking at IVF outcomes, but looking at whole person, uh, whole TCM care. So they basically got acupuncture, herbal medicine, whatever was indicated by the patient's differential diagnosis, and then looked at IVF outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I think we can say we started with the POLIS protocol, and then we got to whole person care. And And it took, you know, eight to 10 years. Yeah. I remember having a research class when, when I was at Siom, approximately mm-hmm. a million years ago. And one of the things that they talked about back then, I think it was Richard Hammerschlag taught that Definitely. class. He did. And it was kind of the early days of research in a way with acupuncture. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really caught my attention was this thing they called uh, comparing standards of care. Mm-hmm. where you're not looking to see, does it work? You're not looking to answer the question, does it work? And you're not a- looking to answer the question of how does it work? You're looking to see how does it work or you know, what's the effectiveness of it as compared to whatever the standard of care is. So for example, if the standard of care is a certain medication for headaches, you would compare acupuncture against that standard of care. Absolutely. And there's two 
two terms actually that relate to that. One is efficacy. That's the standard RCT, you know, looking at say acupuncture and so-called sham acupuncture. And what you're mentioning, you use the exact right term too, effectiveness research, comparing say, I would hope for whole systems, TCM, acupuncture, moxa, herbs, whatever, compared to, you know, the standard surgery or the standard medication or physical therapy. Um, and that kind of research, I think, is quite useful because typically you'll look at as a whole, as and it's closer to the bone. It's closer to how East Asian medicine is rendered in clinic or TCM, whatever nomenclature you want to use, um, how it's rendered in clinic compared to however the other intervention is rendered in clinic. And also that answers very important questions regarding safety. Uh, safety will be looked at also with efficacy with the RCTs. They'll have what they call adverse events, you know, how many people fainted or had needle shock or whatever. But really being able to, to answer questions about how well does this work compared to whatever other intervention and how safe is it? Mm-hmm. Those are really key questions for patients, for other colleagues, for policymakers, for insurance companies as well. Yeah. This is just mind boggling to me. I'm glad because I think, I think research, research for me, I'm, I'm being very frank. When I'm in clinic, I do not go to PubMed. I do not go to PubMed to try to figure out how to treat my patient. It's useless. However, for uh, hoping to be able to have labor and industries in Washington State provide acupuncture care to injured workers, they're going to PubMed. I'll need to go to PubMed to be able to convince LNI to cover acupuncture care. That's a part of what I've been doing to help the Washington State Acupuncture Association in those conversations. But most of what we've rendered for modern research is useless for most clinicians. And, and I think that's unfortunate because the way I explain it to my patients and to many colleagues as a clinician Thankfully, having gone to Siam, I used to be able to read Chinese, but I don't anymore, honestly. So I go to my colleagues who can. We can run a literature review of 2,000 plus years that's relevant. Mm-hmm. That's research. That's, that's stunning. I think the way that our medical history, our, our ancestors, you could say, were consummate researchers. They were astute in their observations. They were thorough in their diagnostics and in documenting that and doing so in an iterative process over time. The problem is modern research thinks only RCTs and beyond that, meta-analyses, looking at a bunch of RCTs, that that's the pinnacle of relevant research information. But at the bottom of that research pyramid always has been the N of one, the case study, and that's where East Asian medicine is so sophisticated. It is, yes, it is. It's incredibly sophisticated. And yes, we pull from thousands of years of people having the conversation. I mean, there's number, you know, there's numerous books out there, the classics for one, but I mean, there's just all kinds of books where you'll have practitioners reading these in different centuries. And making comments, and then there's comments on the commentaries. And so there's actually been an ongoing conversation in Chinese medicine amongst doctors, at least mm-hmm. in the written literature, over the course of centuries. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're not going to, you know, it's not randomized control study. 
stuff, which we're so in love with here in the West, but it's actual people in, you know, in a clinical situation, working with real people, talking about their experiences. And, and this is across you know, economic times, you know, sociological influences change from uh, decade to decade, not, you know, not, not to mention century to century or dynasty to dynasty. Mm-hmm. And all those influences come into play as, as you read through these commentaries that can span hundreds of years. Absolutely. I mention that often to patients when, for example, if I have patients who have unusual symptoms, for example, one-sided sweat, I'll say, wow, you know, I happen to have Stephen Clavey's text, and he talks about one-sided sweat. We have literature relevant to this that goes back, you know, as we're talking about, for centuries and or millennia. And when I talk about the fact that, for example, the Shanghan Lun, we can look at that text in any country on the con- on the planet today that practices East Asian medicine, make sense of that text, use that text, use those herbal formulas for modern day phenomena in a way that benefits patients. When I sit down and really explain that to my patients, they're stunned. They're completely shocked. And it is shocking. It's, it's so, I think, so powerful it's literally time tested and mother approved over millennia (laughs) yes it is and and dare i say i'm going to pull this out of context but i just can't resist it's evidence-based exactly it's evidence-based and and what's the evidence they've been using it for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. it's challenging when our evidence-based medicine it really is that is using vernacular that literally is foreign to biomedical practitioners. It's, it's nonsensical. So I think one place where I have a running hypothesis, the worlds might come together, is in this um, <clears throat> hyper-modern personalized care, individualized care. Is Those are some of the kind of terms that are used where they're actually slowly trying to figure out, based on biology mainly, how to choose one drug over another for a patient. It or sounds one, a lot like Chinese medicine, doesn't it? Yeah. And I really think that if we have some clinicians who can talk shop in very specific ways, very highly technical ways, using biomedical jargon, basically, we might be able to run some trials that would look at even drug trials where we could diagnose the patient by TCM or East Asian medicine differential diagnosis and say, yeah, actually, you know, this drug might be better or that drug or this cocktail or that one or this drug paired with blah, 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 lifestyle recommendations. So we might get there. But I think that's one place where our ancient science that is so refined and is so specific and so sophisticated can be used in a way that's very relevant for biomedicine. Yes. Well, I, I'm going to come back to this again, just because I'm so struck by this. I mean, it's just it, it's just shifted my stance toward research in a big way. Coming back to this term, complex adaptive systems, right? And that you're that there are actually research models out there, and they're nonlinear. It sounds like mm-hmm. that look at complex adaptive systems. Well. This is what Chinese medicine is at its root. Mm-hmm. 
which is, I think, why it makes it so... It, we get such weird views of Chinese medicine looking at it in a very mechanical, uh, double-blind way. So I'd like to know more about where you see this complex adaptive system research and analysis being able to be used beyond beyond medicine. You mean other contexts, such as yes. the weather? Well, yeah. I mean, we could look at the weather. We could look at social uh, structures, organizations, mm-hmm. political trends. I'm just, I'm wondering if there's a way of, of taking this tool, which it, it, it almost sounds a little bit like the I Ching, the Book of Changes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not looking at linear systems. It's looking at, it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, this is, this is a way of research. This is a way of viewing things. This is a way of using statistics to look at complex systems that are continually in a state of flux. Absolutely. There's um, a listserv that I belong to through NIH that's um, it's mainly behavioral sciences, but there's other uh, list members as well. And there's fascinating conversations. And happily, there are now funded positions at various universities for scientists who are studying climate change, who are studying uh, social upheaval, who are studying marital dynamics, who are studying all myriad of health uh, science questions. So there's um, slowly more and more people who are able to to make a career out of this. Um, I was a couple months ago in Florida for uh, my very, very favorite research conference. It's called SCTPLS, the Society for Chaos Theory in Psychology and Life Sciences. It's kind of a, yeah, <laughs> geekdom galore. It's yeah, it sounds pretty geeky. Thing ever, and people are there from, again, psychology and life sciences. Over the whole, it's mostly folks in the U.S., but there's there are people who come from Europe, who come from Australia, from Latin America, and we're usually a group of about forty to eighty. It's it's a small group. But it is a growing group. And I think it's because, you know, definitely Cartesian thought, um, empiricist inquiry has served us well. It's helped us nail down phenomenon. It's helped us dial down to having specialties upon subspecialties and research to work to examine those, those very specific mechanistic, uh, well, you could say mechanisms of action at the biological level and sometimes at the social level, sometimes at the psychological level. No, I can't say that sometimes. Definitely biopsychosocial. We've always been looking across the whole with this empiricist paradigm. But it doesn't satisfy many researchers because life is not that simple, to be honest. It's not that straightforward. It's much more nuanced. It's much more emergent and and resilient, basically. It's like in um, uh, physics when we've had this new information of, oh, you know, it's a particle and a wave. You, you alter phenomenon by studying it. When we started to realize that in the physical sciences, it slowly has trickled over into health sciences and biological sciences as well. And I agree, it's absolutely um, the vernacular, the worldview of East Asian medicine is that uh, phenomenon are emergent, they're changing over time, they're complex. We need to look at zangfu, we need to look at channels, we need to look at the 
uh, the eight principles. We need to look across all these different theoretical frameworks, picking and choosing depending upon what fits each patient best to determine our, our treatment principles. Well, what can I say? I'm a little bit stunned at the moment. I thought I understood a little bit about research, and you just kind of opened up a whole new domain for me. I'm so glad. And I have to say, frankly, what you understood about research is research. It's, again, it's the, the bread and butter of, of the last century. And as I, so I finished my PhD a couple months ago, and I'm currently applying for tenure track jobs and also treating patients. And, and there are some places who, some places that do research like I'm talking about, but again, it's, it's, what do I want to say? It's not the standard fare. Mm -hmm. And I don't care to do the standard fare because it's meaningless for clinical. So this, this sounds a little to me, I'm, I'm going to draw a little bit of a connection here and, and you let me know if I'm on base or not. At the beginning of the last century, there was some amazing work done with quantum physics and all that stuff that basically took physics and just blew it to smithereens. Mm-hmm. It didn't say Newtonian physics wasn't true. It just said, yeah, at this one particular level and this one particular view in this one particular frame, it's, it's really good. It's really useful. But that's one piece of a universe that's actually quite large. It sounds like the methodologies, the processes in, in the particular worldview that you're using with this new kind of research, it doesn't, just, it doesn't say the old stuff isn't helpful. It just says there's a whole lot more out here, and we're just beginning to craft the tools for understanding how to, how to look and apply and ask questions in a different way bingo you really hit the nail on the head i agree it's not sometimes i get a little too excited and it's not to say throw the baby out with the bathwater to use that you know term we don't want to say oh rcts are meaningless because of course they do provide meaning and they do render useful information that's such a good point and there's a lot more to do there's a, a another it's almost like it's almost like if you're listening to a symphony, you're listening to music in um, not in stereo. You've got a crummy reception or something. It's I don't. You'll have a better term for this. It's like analog instead of digital or something. And then you have a better sound system, and all of a sudden, wow, this music is so nuanced, and you can understand the the layers and the connections between phrases and instruments or something like that. I think that's the metaphor. Where you don't want to say, oh, if it's analog, it's garbage. But mm-hmm. but definitely, we can do we can do more. We can do more. You know, you I've heard you use this term a couple of times today, nuanced, and I think it's such a great description of how Chinese medicine, when it's really being practiced, you know, the way that it's supposed to be practiced, uh, it brings that element out. Mm-hmm. That, that, that nuanced aspect is, I mean, that's what makes a good cook a good cook, right? That's what makes a great musician a great musician is, is this attention to these small things that have these incredible effects on the whole. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And I think whether it's, um, you know, not only choosing one herb over another for modifying a formula, 
but with within that choice, you know, do I use eight grams or do I use ten? And really pondering that subtle, subtle nuance that you mentioned is absolutely, um, I agree. What makes clinical treatment so so, or could make clinical treatment mind blowing? It can, you know, the most exciting times I've had in clinic are when, for example, I had a patient come back and she. After her first treatment, I have to go back a step. So her first treatment, she came in and says, gosh, you know, Lisa, not only do I have right leg pain, but my right leg, like I have to drag it and it feels so different from my left. I wish I could just pop it off like a Barbie doll and put a new leg on. It it just feels so strange. So I treated her. She came back the second treatment and said, I can't believe it. Not only is my pain better, but my right and my left leg feel the same. I feel like a whole person. That one treatment, that one interaction set me off on a very different and specific route of inquiry for my entire dissertation because I could tell she was feeling her body in a different way than she had prior to that first treatment. It it was mind-boggling, so it is very nuanced, the care we provide. Another comment briefly about that is this term called the butterfly effect. And so the idea, it comes from weather. If you have a butterfly flapping its wings in Illinois, it could affect the weather in, in Washington state. And that non, um, non, sometimes we can't identify, non-identifiable initial condition, conditions can affect outcomes greatly. And that gets back to that conversation we had earlier about nonspecific effects or emergent effects. If we're studying this whole complex, nuanced, changing intervention, changing over time, according to how the patient's changing over time, when we're trying to understand how its effectiveness or its efficacy is, say, at the end of the study, we need to study things you'd expect, like, is their back pain better? Are their hot flashes better? Is their standard of um, their activities of daily life, have they improved? Is their quality of life improved? according to standardized measures. But also, um, we need to try to look at those unintended consequences, those unpredictable, non-specific effects. And there are tools, one that I love, developed by Charlotte Patterson in the UK, is called the MIMOP. It's Measure Your Own Medical Outcomes Perspective, something like that. And basically, patients can list, oh, these are my priorities, and this is how I see things changing over time. And that's one tool that might be uh, able to capture novel or uh, unsuspected outcomes. And those are, you know, you could say butterfly effects. Yeah, great. Well, I'm, I've got a ton of stuff to put on the show notes page. That's for sure. Speaking of that, are there any websites in particular that a layperson could go to and, and kind of get a taste of the stuff that you've been talking about? Absolutely. If they look at um, this Society for Chaos Theory in, and Life Sciences, the SCTPLS website, they have a whole primer on um, complex adaptive systems theory, chaos theory, um, and it's very useful in terms of looking at basic concepts uh, from that theoretical framework. There's also, uh, through the Santa Fe Institute, they have uh, something called the, I think it's the Complexity Institute. Let me just look it up while we're talking. Um, Where you can take 
four free uh, courses on complex adaptive systems science, and uh, that's a very good resource. Complexityexplorer.org. Cool. And so they offer, it's like, a, what is it called? MOOC, Massive Online Whatever Course. That's a great uh, resource. In terms of the, this worldview and research on traditionally Asian medicine, definitely look up Lisa Conboy. She's at NISA, the New England School of Medicine. All of her articles are available through PubMed. Definitely look up Mary Coithan. K-O-I-T-H-A-N, and uh, Iris Bell. They are at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Also, their papers are on PubMed. Look up uh, Jonathan Butner, B-U-T-N-E-R. He's a psychologist at Utah, University of Utah, and he's fabulous in terms of, actually, his website is very useful in uh, looking at these specific statistical analyses to run. Um, it's not going to be regarding Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine specifically, but to look at those uh, those research tools. Uh, who else? Oh, yes, Scott Mist, OHSU at Oregon State Health University. Don't quote me there. OHSU in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. His work also at PubMed and also... Um, Oh, he and some colleagues down at University of Arizona published some work on TMJ that was a you know, whole system of medicine trial of East Asian medicine. Please feel free to look at my website as well, lisataylorswanson.com. And uh, I have information there as well regarding uh, complexity and my thoughts about research. Fabulous. Lisa, this has been wonderful, a bit mind-blowing and I'm looking forward, well, it's always fun to hang out and talk with you. I'm looking forward to seeing what other stuff you come up with with your research. Thank you, Michael, and thanks for the opportunity. I agree, it's always a delight to talk. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.